0: photo by data plug creatives. But I was just chilling. While everything from BBI and wheelbarrows to social media fiascos and WhatsApp gossips makes headlines, plenty of other chronicles from the plug can easily slip through the cracks. And from surprising tales to weird talks to crazy buddies all that's interesting has the plug's best collection of today's odd and strange story. I like the outlaws. Outcasts. Gangsters. You love to hate them or love to love them in the movies. They never experiment with hats, they wear the same hats. They wear a beard they don't deserve. They never sit by ponds staring at ducks because they have the emotional maturity of a bottle of liquor. They sit isolated in the corner of small charmless pubs, their reflections dull in their liquor. They knock on their doors at the darkest hour of the night, hands hidden in old coats with upturned collars and Gideon boots. They always have a cigarette lighter in their pockets but never enough cigarettes. Sure, they die, eventually like we all do, but they have a lot of fun first. And when they die the story ends, which means they controlled the narrative. Without them the heroes and motivational speakers would be useless and rudderless, doing nothing but mowing their lawns and spending too much time on Facebook. This story is about a guy, yes, but his story emerges from the story of a gangster. They are Saudi and Saul. Yin and Yang. Shakila and his goddamn clout chasing. We often chat on WhatsApp he's a cool guy that's wired very differently. He comes across as an introvert, a leopard, who wants to walk the edge of the forest, away from the bright lights. The type who soaks his bread in tea. And looks out open windows a little longer than the rest. The reason why introverts gloomily go about their lives, wearing earphones to block out the pollution of mankind, is because of us, extroverts. They want us to know what we want. They tend to think things over carefully, while extroverts may show more of an attachment to take chances without spending too much time pondering possible outcomes. He married up. He told me so. She can keep a home but she can also jump-start their jalopy when they are stuck along the scenery of Timau, Laikipia. She doesn't mind getting camping smoke in her hair or eating meat roasted over an open fire. She can shower by the riverbed. She uses a blade of grass as a toothpick. Choose the end of a twig into a toothbrush. In the third term of Form 2, the wheels slowly started coming off, jumping over the school fence to go smoking and drinking in little village dens where men drank mostly Muratina and Chang At the end of Form 3, with KCSE looming, he performed dismally and got an index number towards the bottom of the class. Fourth form came with more drinking. Going for roll calls, smelling booze. He didn't care for rules and was caught drunk in school, and he was asked to apologize before the whole school during assembly. He took the microphone and said, Now that I have quenched my thirst, I can study. The whole school cackled in peals of laughter as the teachers stood there with puzzled looks. Of course, the authorities didn't take kindly to being mocked so he was told, It seems you want to be a comedian who drinks so we are sending you home to go and work on your comedy material and your drinking. He was suspended. When he eventually went back to school, he continued to sneak out and go drinking. Over the holidays, he'd be shooting pool and drinking alcohol. He'd be drinking 15 sachets of cheap vodka. Back in school, he was fighting prefects, sneaking out, being blacklisted and punished but he kept going. During his KCSE, they sneaked out of school and ended up in Coco Savannah. Coco Savannah was by then a posh partying hole for Nax vegans. They were already out of their head. They started a fight in the club with the bouncers who threw them out. The fight attracted the police who grabbed him and he pleaded and told them he was a student and he was currently sitting for his KCSE. He scored A- in KCSE. Yes, he was that guy. He was called to Nairobi University to pursue electrical engineering. As he waited, he was drinking hard. He was 19. First year wasn't so bad, he did well. Second year the drinking got worse. He drank daily in uni, missing lectures, missing exams, missing exams, failing, being called to sit before the Senate and not going because he was too drunk to remember. Whenever he stopped drinking during exams he'd have serious nightmares. In his third year, he was in uni but never stepped into class. He drank all the fees and dropped out of uni and never graduated together with his class of 2012. University wasn't happening because drinking was. It was hard drinking mostly in downtown Nairobi, dingy smoky bars that didn't have windows and never saw the sun. Men gazed back from them like alley cats. Before corona and curfew, these bars never closed down, you would walk in any time and you'd find people drinking. This is where the black market goes down. Everybody was a friend if they had a drink in front of them. These men were not just regular drunkards, they were doctors, gangsters, engineers, philosophers, and the most wanted criminals languishing away at the bottom of the barrel, imprisoned by the bottle, a bond of booze. Months and years fell off the calendar. He'd lock himself in the house and keep away the key to avoid going drinking. But the urge would break down the door and come for him like a frenzied animal. He'd walk for miles in the middle of the night for a drink. He'd fall into ditches and wake up in trenches. He became an embarrassment to his family. A black sheep in the family. People treated him differently. His friends had something to talk about. Was him, all the time they met. They said straight to his face that he would amount to nothing. He has woken up in many bad places. He tells me that he once woke up on a bus headed to Busia. Busia. I laugh. I can't help it. I can't imagine him looking out the window and seeing a weird landscape running outside, green hills, men in big jackets, old beat-up probox carrying 20 people, a man with an afro selling tea leaves and yogurt. Him turning to his neighbor and asking, boss, hukuni wapi? and him telling him, carico. And him thinking, what the F? Kwani tune into weepy? And the man saying, Busia, And him thinking it's a dream. Haha. It was a Thursday when his family said that they will take him to rehab over the weekend. But then he told them, no, can we go on Tuesday? That weekend he drank all the alcohol he could. He drank so much, he couldn't recognize his feet. He'd look at them and think, whose feet are these? Where are my feet? On Tuesday morning, he packed a few clothes. He was checked into a rehab center. What do you remember about the day you were checked in? I ask him. He pauses for a bit. I remember a guy who would laugh at nothing every five or so minutes, completely unprompted. As in, he would just start laughing. I felt like it was a refuge. Rehab meant withdrawals and restlessness. I had crazy dreams, he says. You pray and talk to a therapist spirituality is a big part of healing. I was interested in finding out why I was like that. He laughs and continues why I couldn't just function like other people. Why was I prone to addiction? I was tired of the person I was, tired of being sick with this disease. There were doctors and priests, rich kids and poor kids, there were engineers, clerks and dropouts. There were women. Professional women and women who were in university. Mothers, sisters and cousins. lovers." three months he was there for three months then on july 28 2013 he left rehab and he was scared of what of being sick again he says i had seen many people who had gone back to rehab while i was there going to rehab wasn't the true test staying away from it being sober was he moved back home that night he lay in bed and felt exposed again this wasn't a rehab this was home It had a gate, and he could simply walk out and have a drink again, and none of those three months in rehab would matter anymore. When you are recovering, you don't think of being sober a month or a year from now. You think of being sober today. Just ending the day sober. Then the next day and the next, and days turn into months and months into years, and before you know it, it's been eight years. He went back to university, got a degree in computer science, and got a job. He now owns two IT based companies. He has attended Alcoholic Anonymous meetings for those years. You don't stop, he says, because you are still an addict. You have to fellowship. Do you sometimes get tempted to go back to drinking? When you are an addict, your mind never forgets. You still have that memory of how it is to be high. There are triggers that we are taught in therapy, mine is anger and resentment. When I have any of those, I feel like drinking. So I try to avoid them or deal with them better because just one drink will undo all the eight years. He got married some years back and now has one child. They met soon after he left rehab. She was working as a nurse. Love blossomed. She's beautiful and she listened to my shit, he says. I'm crazy about her because she was the only woman who ever responded to who I really was. Many people would meet me and think a disgrace. Not her. She saw beyond the struggle, tossed away the debris of addiction and found him underneath, the person he really was. What do you miss about your drinking days? I can't say I miss something about those days. He pauses. No, I don't. I've had the best days sober. He's an outdoorsy kind of guy. Him and his wife. They love nature and men who love nature understand the tools of nature, so they acquired a Toyota Land Cruiser. It's a car that always has its shoes laced, ready to go. At least once each month, they loaded with their camping gear and they drive off into the horizon to look for a place less inhabited by man, places where the sun looms so large and sets so slowly. They don't go to designated camping areas where everybody goes to drink and play loud music from their Bluetooth speakers. Those they avoid. They go to places that look like scorched earth on Google Maps. A place like North Hoare or the very navel of Maasai Land. There they pitch a tent he gets a fire going as his wife stands on an anthill and squints at the emptiness and the silence of the plains. They are both teetotalers, so after dinner around the fire, they sit there holding their mugs of tea in both their hands for warmth, and they speak in the hushed tones of lovers. But sometimes they just sit in silence, listening to the occasional crickets chirping and into the night. What's that animal? She may ask of a sound she has never heard of. Staring into the crackling fire. She will hug her Maasai throw tightly around her. They will talk about someone they both knew when they first met and how sad that they are already departed. When he looks at her face in the orange light of the campfire, it will seem like she has glowing coal under her skin. Her eyes are turned into an arena of dancing flames. He will stare at how the darkness reframes her round facial features, creating little illusions that now looks like a Pablo Picasso art from a gangster to a family man with a great sense of mindfulness and with energy coming from within, instead of from people and things around him. This is a guy less likely to strike up random conversations with people they don't know well or even with people they do know well. He is a good man. All glory and honor goes back to the Almighty God. Mishallah. Kota the Friend Camp.